All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite casual Hoya basketball podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Bancroft, and I'm here with the coach, Marcus Washington. You can find them at MTC with Mook on Twitter. I have the very boring name of just at Bobby Bancroft, which you already know. Anyway, Marcus, a lot's happened with Georgetown since we've last spoken, at least on Kente Corner, the award-winning podcast you guys are all listening to right now. Um, let's start real quick with Kudus Wahab is back. I feel like it was just yesterday we were having a podcast trying to figure out why in the world he would leave probably the best spot at a power program. And less than a year later, or I guess probably about a year later, he's back on the roster. What were your first thoughts about that? Particularly since, you know, unlike me, you cover Maryland. Yeah, I was, um, I was a little bit surprised that he was in the portal for as long as he was in the portal. But because of that, it made me wonder if he was getting the calls that he expected to get, which it looks like the answer was no. So I was a little <laughs> surprised they ended up back at Georgetown just for the simple fact that I didn't know that um, Georgetown had any interest in bringing him back. Furthermore, you know, what their scholarship situation was. Uh, we know how he fits in Patrick's uh, scheme because Patrick hasn't changed his scheme uh, since he's left. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what their relationship is. Is it going to be better if whatever prompted the transfer has that been solved? I just know over at Maryland, um, it didn't seem like it was a good fit. And when I thought about Maryland uh, hiring Kevin Willard, uh, to be frank with you, I didn't know if that was a, any of a better fit than it was with, with uh, Mark Turgeon. So this is one of these things that sometimes, you know, uh, you, you break up with your high school sweetheart and y'all go your separate ways and you end up coming back realizing how much you missed having the good things that you had when you were together the first time. So last year, his numbers were down across the board with Maryland in the Big Ten. You know, he still pretty much started every game, but minutes were down. Obviously, if minutes are down, it's going to be hard to have your other categories, you know, maintain or you know, improve. I think when he left out the door, you know, there was a relationship with a trainer, a mentor. It's not a guardian. Uh, I know some people use the term handler, which I feel like is kind of weird and creepy, but it, it did sound like he had a guy that thought that maybe he wasn't being used properly, that he wanted to show his ability to become a stretch four or five, you know, whatever the case may be. It seems like based on what I'm looking at from his, you know, stats, you know, that didn't really happen. He didn't start taking a bunch of threes. His field goal percentage kind of stayed the same, which me leads me to believe without really watching Maryland, he wasn't shooting a lot of long twos. Did you see any of that in his game at Maryland? No. And if anything, Maryland used him for the exact opposite. Uh, the year before, Maryland did struggle in the Big Ten with teams that was bigger than them. They couldn't get enough points in the paint, and they couldn't defend the paint. The whole idea of, of Q coming in was for him to be a paint present, both offensively and defensively. It wasn't for him to stretch. In fact, Maryland had a freshman um, in Julian Reese that they used to stretch, and he's more of a natural uh, stretch four, stretch five than Q. Uh, it, we didn't see a lot of stretching in the offense for him, and there wasn't a lot of opportunities for him to stretch. In fact, Danny Manning – when he was just the assistant before he took over as the head coach, 
was working with him solely on improving his post game. Uh, nothing about stepping out and shooting. So that seemed to be maybe a loss in in some sort of communication because it looked like to me Maryland never intended to use him other than as your traditional uh, post presence, that there was never going to be that opportunity where he could expand his game further away from the basket. So, um, again, like others, I, I wonder how that fit was going to work from jump, and it just didn't look like it worked for either one of them. So, obviously, when you have the kind of season that Georgetown did, Six and twenty-five. They lost their last twenty-one games. You know, oh for the Big East. You know, coaching was a problem. The talent was a problem. Everything was a problem. Pretty much everyone's kind of gone away. Patrick's obviously still there, but the roster from guys that played last year—it's really just Dante Harris, Ryan Matumbo. Um, you know, it's kind of the main guys that actually played. Can you tell me with all the new additions, uh, this is seven transfers, two freshmen are coming in. And then I'm going to say that really that's eight transfers because the kid Wayne Bristol from Howard joined the team, never played because of, you know, he wasn't eligible, that kind of stuff. He was, you know, second semester. So basically 10 new guys. Let's do kind of, you know, glass, <laughs> glass half full, glass half empty. Tell me why Kudis is the final piece for Patrick Ewing to take this entirely new team and get them in a position to make a run at an at-large berth? Well, partially because Georgetown still hasn't added enough shooting. So what you do is you look at a formula like, look, we're going to try to shoot the threes, maybe less threes than we have in the past, to try to get the ball to the basket. And maybe our best offense is the uh, rebound that's the stick back. Uh, Kudis, certainly the first time around, was able to score a lot of his points on those stick backs. The other thing that Patrick loved to do in his four-out one-in is isolate the post. And when you isolate the post in today's game, that means you need to have a guy who can play with his back toward the basket, which I can tell you right now, you don't see much coming into college anymore. Q was one of those guys who could play uh, maybe not as efficient as you wanted with his back toward the basket. I think that helps Georgetown out a lot in what Patrick Ewing wants to do. He can probably ISO Q um, like he did the first time around if they have enough three-point shooting, and that makes uh, Q a more effective player. And so if you're looking for what he can bring to the program that they didn't have last year, let's be honest, um, they couldn't really score in the post. You know, and, and to give Patrick credit – he did try a few other things. He did try putting um, Holloway in the post. He inverted the offense and got Aminu down there sometimes to play in the post to, to fill the void. But his offense is truly made for it to be a traditional post-up guy, traditional in the way of my generation, traditional guy with four guys out there to help create lanes and spread the offense. So if you're looking for a positive of Wahab being back, that is definitely the positive he'll fit in naturally to what Patrick really wants to do. And then the flip side, probably the side that I sort of lean towards, um, why does this addition still leave Georgetown short in what would be in Patrick's sixth year? You know, they, they did make the tournament the one year, but they've never been in a position of an at-large, you know, 
uh, candidacy. Tell me why, despite adding Kudis and all the new players, this falls short. And I guess I should say real quick, because we've I guess we're just assuming it, which we have to. Kudis is going to need a waiver, okay, because he's already used his free transfer. Usually it's not difficult to get a waiver when there's been a coaching change. Um, and also um, Heath is going to need a waiver as well, one of their perimeter transfers coming in. So we're just kind of – those are kind of the assumptions we're going with. So I don't want to have anyone come at me on Twitter and give me a but actually type of type of response. Well, it goes back to what I said before. Georgetown doesn't have enough shooting. So uh, Kuda's low post game kind of looks like the way it does when it left. It did not improve in Maryland. I think that was part of the frustration over there as he saw his playing time as the season went on, his playing time dipped because one of the things was is he could only dominate smaller players, uh, couldn't dominate guys that his size. So when you look at the offensive production there with less three-point shooting, will teams double? And, and take those things away from them. And they did that some in the Big Ten. Now, the, the Big Ten uh, opponents that had traditional base, they were able just to guard them one-on-one and, and not have to double, and, and they choked off Maryland's perimeter shooting. Uh, so, you know, that could certainly happen at Georgetown. And defensively, uh, Q didn't get better at Maryland. He, he showed that he couldn't guard the post uh, against a traditional big that could also play with their back towards the basket. Uh, other teams that didn't have traditional base were able to pull him away from the basket and beat him off the dribble. His footwork hasn't gotten any better than what it uh, was when he left. And those things got to be disturbing because uh, truly they're getting the same player back that left two years ago. And they, for Georgetown's program, that can't be the guy that they get back. They have to get back a guy that you can say in his third season is, has improved in X amount of categories and right now, we have not seen him improve in categories, sort of the same guy as he was as a freshman. So if you're looking at it as a glass half empty, you have to ask yourself, hmm, Georgetown has less shooting. They're not better defensively. They don't have a guy on the wing who can get to the front of the rim, in part because of skill set, and two, because Q can't stretch, so he'll be clogging up the lane. And so when you look at those things, you're not better defensively. You're like, oh, we might not even be getting back a better situation than him coming back. So if if for the people leaning towards that way, I can certainly understand that too. Yeah, it seems like, you know, on his way out, which again was just, I thought, very, very surprising given that not many teams are going to, you know, play through a guy like him in 2022. Um for as as well as the Big East tournament went, he left really fast after that Colorado NCAA tournament game, which sort of highlighted all of the shortcomings of maybe an older school traditional big. If you remember what Colorado was doing, they were just going nuts from three with a lot of their bigs, and there was kind of nowhere nowhere to put them. So. Yes, I was I think I was more in the in the move on category. Again, this is Kente Corner. We are coming to you just after just about twenty four hours after Kudis has making his return to Georgetown after spending a year in College Park. Now again, Marcus, we haven't spoken. Georgetown's added a lot of players. So just real quick, who stands out to you the most? I mean, you've you got a lot of candidates. We just talked about Kudis. 
Um, they picked up a cook, a cook from UConn, who I think is an interesting prospect down low and not a traditional center. Uh, Jay Heath, who it maybe can provide some of that shooting if he's able to be eligible from Boston College, Arizona State. Primo, Primo Spears from Duquesne. We saw a little bit of him in the A-10. Brandon Murray, who I think is probably the crown jewel of this, and they got really quickly after Kevin Nickelberry came over from LSU onto, onto Patrick's staff when he made this, made this, uh, the staff changes. I think, I think Murray's the guy, when you look at Aminu Muhammad, who no one assumes is going to come back to Georgetown, it, it feels like Brandon Murray might be a little bit of an upgrade as far as a guy that can, you know, get his shot and sort of be the, the player. And I'm not taking anything away from Aminu, but it seemed like Aminu struggled to get his own shot. Yeah, yeah, I do think that Murray's the guy I'm most interested in because he can create his own shot. Something that, let's be honest with you, I haven't seen a lot of um, in an efficient way um, since Patrick Ewan has taken over. I know people might argue um, Matt McClung, but eh, I'm not sure if if I would put him in that category. But I love what Brandon Murray can do, even though my concern was as the season went on, especially near the end, his numbers did fall off a lot. The minutes stayed there but the numbers fell off. So obviously I don't know if it's one of those things where he hit the wall um, coming out of high school to LSU or what happened going down the stretch, but the numbers fell off. But Georgetown does need someone who can create his own shot. How many times have we seen a guy not being athletic enough in those last seven seconds where you're not really running some sort of set as much as you need a guy who can get an off schedule uh, bucket and Murray's, on paper, fills that in. And going back to what I said before with the four-out-one-in, uh, Georgetown really needs those type of guys, especially when you don't have dynamic wings. So watching Murray um, play against Big East talent this season is going to be what's going to captivate me. And can he get to the front of the realm in a, the, uh, a conference that's been traditionally more physical? If he can, maybe that takes away from some of the concerns of Georgetown shooting and their need for athleticism. I think we've had this conversation before, um, and I'm sure this can be done even with Georgetown's academics. The one thing I've been disappointed about is the lack of athleticism that's been here for the last five years, and it does hurt them. Because I do think if you're going to play a style that uh, somewhat offensively resembles Alabama, it doesn't resemble it defensively, but offensively it does, then you got to have a guy that can get it off schedule. I had a Division One coach tell me, first seven seconds belongs to the players. Up until the last seven seconds belongs to him, and then the last seven seconds belong back to the players. When you think about Georgetown's roster and that philosophy, who did you have confidence in that can make those off-schedule plays in those first seven, the last seven? No one. And hopefully Murray can fill that void because in 2022, unless you're an overwhelmingly great defensive team, maybe you're like a UVA or something like that, you need those guys and you need those off-schedule baskets to make ends meet. So, yeah, that obviously didn't happen last year. And let's talk real quick about the players that left. We obviously knew, look, in college basketball nowadays, guys leave. Guys leave for the traditional reasons that they just don't play a lot. Guys leave for the non-traditional reasons, which is they're able to, you know, level up without having to sit, which is good for them. Okay. But 
Georgetown had six scholarship transfers. Tyler Beard ended up at Pacific. Kobe Clark ended up at Southeast Missouri. Jalen Billingsley ended up at Eastern Michigan. Uh, Timothy Egoefe ended up at Cal Baptist. Colin Holloway ends up at Tulane. And then Donald Carey, uh, we were very surprised he had an extra year of eligibility. Seemed like at middle of last season, Georgetown didn't seem to think he did. But anyway, he's decided to, you know, skip out on maybe making some money somewhere, and he's staying home and going to Maryland. So all those names I read off to you and all of their destinations, you can kind of see why Georgetown really struggled and didn't win a Big East game. I wasn't exactly – none of those guys left for what you would call – you know, better situations other than Donald Carey, who's out of Maryland right now. That's in a, you know, they're in, they're in the crossroads. They're in a transition. Kevin Willard did a good job at Seton Hall, but you know, Maryland in 22, 23 is no way some sort of guaranteed NCAA tournament team. So were you surprised at some of those guys that didn't make that at, at, at where they ended up? Or is that kind of what you thought their level was? And that contributed to how bad of a season Georgetown had. I think part of it is all of the above in this sense. When I go to the portal, if I'm a power five, unless you're really, really dynamic, I'm probably looking for a veteran. And so none of those guys, or with the exception of Kerry and uh, Big Tim, fit that build. And I think that's going to be the one thing about the transfer portal that the younger guys are going to find out. It's harder to level up. Because now, as a coach, if I'm at a P5 and I'm trying to win right now, or I think there's a final piece for me to win a conference title or a conference tournament title, I'm probably going after the junior or the senior or the grad guy. I'm probably not bringing in an 18-year-old. And I think that played a part in those guys ending up where they did. Second, and this is not a criticism of Patrick Ewing, but I don't think those guys were put it, with the exception of Kerry, in positions to succeed that would make me as a power five come after a Beard, come after a Billingsley. A lot of those guys played inconsistent minutes, um, probably played in systems that probably didn't exactly fit for them. And that only offy type of play um, as a power five coach, I'm probably not calling about that guy unless it was a guy I recruited coming out of high school. So as a mid-major, though, especially if I'm a lower mid-major or kind of a mid-mid-major, yeah, why am I not rolling the dice on a Jalen Billingsley who had uh, all these accolades coming out of high school that he would never choose a program like mine because it was too small? Now I have a chance at that guy because he's probably looking for two things, a place to go and a place to play immediately, get immediate minutes. And I really do think with the younger guys that left Georgetown, that's what they were looking for. Where can I go where I'm going to play right now? And if I'm Tyler Beard or Jalen Billingsley, I cannot fault them for having that attitude because that's what I would have done. I would have wanted to go to a power five if it was going to be those inconsistent minutes or I'm going to play 12 to 14 minutes a night. No, 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 no. I'd rather go to a mid-major where I know I'm going to probably get like 30, maybe even 34 minutes. So, you know, yeah, I understand the, the lack of leveling up, especially with some of the accolades those guys have coming out of high school. But I also think from a larger perspective, it's where we are with college basketball and the transfer portal. For younger guys, if you're not special, you're going to either be a lateral move or you're going down. That train runs both ways. I think that's what happened to most of the guys who left Georgetown. That's interesting 
I, and I agree with a lot of that. That's interesting why you say that. And if we flip it back to the other side of the ledger, the transfers that are coming into Georgetown, I mean, you know, as a coach, you know, you can't play 13 dudes, right? And Georgetown, if you count Bristol, they're bringing in eight transfers and two freshmen. That's 10 guys. Plus, as I mentioned, you've got Dante Harris. You've got Ryan Matumbo. Jordan Riley, we didn't see a lot of him. He had the shoulder issue, okay? But you've got, got you know, usually, like you said, when you transfer, you're transferring to play. Nobody transfers to sit. And yeah. you got to think that some of these guys that are betting on themselves transferring to Georgetown, they're not all going to play. And, I'm, you know, a couple of the guys that we didn't mention earlier, or that I should say I didn't mention, um, you know, the big from LSU, Bradley Izuiro, he didn't play a whole lot. He looks like he's kind of a smaller center. He's not a stretch in any, any you know, any um, stretch of the word or, you know, the meaning. Okay, the guy from USC Upstate, basically the uh, the grad transfer, Bryson M- Mazzone. Um, you know, some of these guys aren't going to play. And I wonder, I wonder when you're the staff and, you know, you're Patrick and you're Nickelberry and you're Crouch and you're Orr, all these guys aren't going to play, right? I mean, like, so it, it just seems interesting that, you know, they're all being told, you know, we need you, this is how you fit, but they can't all play. Right. And I think that's going to be interesting how, how Patrick managed that. Remember when he first got here, there were games where he played 11 guys in the first half. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. thought that at that time it was sometimes keeping teams in game. I understood in theory what he was doing, but in practice, um, I think at times it hurt the team. What I would like to see Patrick do, and I've asked this question two straight years, and I probably won't ask it a third. I've asked him before, can we see more defensive pressure, three-quarters courts, full court, and just roll that bench? Keep guys fresh. Keep guys engaged. Keep guys involved. Because that is one way of doing it. Now, you pare down to eight or nine in the second half, and that's completely understandable. But you keep guys involved. You keep them competing for minutes. You establish pace. For Georgetown, it gives you an opportunity to get easy baskets because Lord knows you need those with the lack of shooting that you have. Um, those type of things um, where maybe he does go small more and have both Mutombo and, um, and Wahab sit. And this is no offense to Wilson, but I would think that Wilson is the guy who loses out on the most minutes. Um, those type of things. So I think Patrick can help mitigate it if he's willing to do some things that he hasn't done in the past, and it could be a win-win. Now you do have all the guys engaged, and Lord knows you can play less uh, set-up offense and go against less set defenses, which this team sorely, desperately needs. And I think that's been one of the things that's been brilliant about Mike Anderson up at St. John is that I think he realizes with the system that he has it can mask some shortcomings. And so he plays to that. And I think that Patrick needs to kind of have an honest conversation with Patrick and say, you know what, we have these shortcomings. We do have a lack of shooting. We do have a lack of athleticism. We do play too much against set defenses. This is a way to help mitigate it. And by the way, as you said, eight transfers, and we didn't, those transfers didn't come to sit. So it will be a win-win for everyone involved. And I, I just wish that 
he would take a look at that. Because the last two years when I've asked him, hey, well, are we going to see that pressure defense more? Uh, the answer has been no. It's going to be what it's always been. What's kind of wild is that, you know, before the dam broke with Akinjo and LeBlanc, and then a couple days later, Gardner and Alexander, and they lost all those guys. You know, they were up in New York. You know, they had Duke on the ropes. They beat Texas the night before. And, you know, Terrell Allen wasn't playing a lot. Javon Blair got a DNP. And because of the way that, you know, the guys left, those, you know, obviously Allen and Blair ended up playing pretty much every second of the season going forward. But, you know, Allen is an example of someone that transferred in. I remember being surprised he transferred in, knowing that Patrick was going to play McClung and Akinjo basically every second that he could. And he still yeah. got Allen basically to, you know, come home, play his grad transfer year and all that stuff. And at first it wasn't looking like he wasn't going to, he wasn't look like he was going to play very much. Uh, Javon Blair probably would have been one of those guys that transfers because he wasn't, he was getting, he, he got at least one DNP. I remember I was always joking. I'm on Blair Island. I know he's going to start making his shots and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it's interesting. Like when you look at this roster, it's hard to know what the rotation is going to be sitting here in May. It's hard to know who on this roster is going to be Kobe Clark, who on this roster is going to be Tyler Beard, because for every group of 13, you know, scholarship players, it shakes out that way. You know, there's just guys that don't play. So I think one of the craziest things to me is there's kids that transferred in here that are, you know, betting on themselves and it's just a numbers game. You you can't, you can't play 13 guys. Um, so it'll be interesting to see which, which one of the guys, you know, doesn't play. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, one more thing before we start talking a little bit about the AU circuit, going back to the statement from Lee Reed in the beginning of March, where they backed Patrick when it was looking like maybe it was maybe the end of the second Patrick Ewing era at Georgetown. And one of the things in this statement from Lee Reed, which I'm disappointed that the president never put a statement out as he had done in the past, but that, uh, you know, we're, we're working with Patrick to evaluate every aspect of men's basketball and to make the necessary changes for him to put us back on the path to success for next year. And obviously they've overhauled the roster that was needed. But one of the things I think we all kind of thought is that the staff would change probably more pronounced change than what we've seen. We basically saw Wahid, who had been the last year of JT3 and all five years of Patrick. He is no longer with the program. Um, uh, Kirby, who had been, you know, he it was his second stay as a Georgetown assistant. He's no longer part of the program. Louis Orr stayed. They got Kevin Nickelberry, who had been the interim coach at LSU for a little bit. He had previously coached at Howard. He's come in. They've given him the title of, you know, recruiting coordinator. And then they promoted from within from a team that went 6-25. and 25. Clinton Crouch has been promoted from special assistant to assistant. Um they haven't made any other changes. They've really only added one guy. They've added Nickelberry because Crouch was on the staff. Crouch, for whatever, you know, we don't know what happens behind closed doors at the Thompson Center, but Clint Crouch was part of the team that just really, really struggled enough that this athletic director had to put the statement out. So either 
you know, Crouch isn't, you know, either he doesn't get listened to or he didn't have the ideas to help. Or maybe it was just a situation where, you know, the team just lacked so much talent, no matter how much you sort of twisted and schemed, it didn't matter. But I'm a little surprised that the necessary changes needed to get this program back to success is basically just one guy. I'm I'm just very surprised by this. Oh, I think there could be a couple things in play. First and foremost, um, how attractive of a job would it have been if I'm coming in as an assistant with a coach that I don't know exactly what his status is going to be? Um, that might have played a part. And, and second, maybe they couldn't bring anyone else in. I mean, people are always looking for jobs. Assistant coaches are always looking for jobs. They're always looking to move up, um, you know, that food chain. But when you look at it, maybe there were uh, jobs that were more attractive where the coach had um, what maybe the assistant coach felt like was uh, more of a foothold in keeping his job. It is hard to hire assistant coaches of, of some sort of quality if they think that you are on shaky ground at your university um, because no one wants to get there for a year uh, and then shoot away and have to find another job. And I know we had spoken before, Nickelberry, that, that's a situation because the whole LSU thing where he did fill that void in. But for the most part, you're probably going to get a young guy. And I don't know if Patrick wanted a young guy or if the university wanted to bring in someone who was going to do on-the-job training in a year where they want so much change. And so maybe they look for veteran coaches that maybe had lost their jobs and they put out feelers and maybe those guys said no in part because they didn't like the situation in part because maybe they feel like they're not listened to the current staff isn't listened to. So why would I go there not to be listened to? There's a lot of things at play that might've made the Georgetown assistant coaching jobs uh, not attractive to the guys that Georgetown would have liked to have brought in. Um, it's one of those things that we won't know unless one of us or someone we know have a private conversation um, with, with some of the veteran coaches in that industry. But that would be my bet. I don't think they could um, – I don't think that this job was attractive enough to bring in someone that probably uh, would have made a, a big-time difference in because I just don't see why that person would have taken this job. Yeah. Well, obviously we know there were some reports out there by our good friend, Ron Bailey, that, you know, Jordan Brooks, who had been part of the staff, not as an assistant, but another, another position on the Xavier staff that he was a likely candidate that obviously didn't work out. I would love to know eventually (laughs) whether it's for public consumption or not what happened there because that seems like a really odd situation um and then you know there was some rumors about some other guys as well but yeah on one hand i see why it's not an attractive job on the other hand it seems like if you survived O for the big east you could survive anything and you know i don't want to be too cynical but it's like you know does it look like georgetown would ever fire patrick ewing it seems to me like he's a Supreme Court justice at this point. So I think the problem could be more of if I go to this place, will I be listened to? You know, am I going to matter? Am I going to be an associate head coach? I, and I think I'm talking right now more about like the Mike, Mike Pegues type, you know, stuff. 
You know, yeah. am I going to be a legitimate candidate for this job going forward? I mean, whenever the Georgetown job opens again, whether however it opens again, I think it could be one of the more attractive jobs in college basketball, but it depends on what's happening behind the scenes. Is there a shadow basketball athletic director that I think we all kind of know who I'm talking about? Does that person get to stay on in, you know, forever? If so, then maybe not as attractive as I just said a couple minutes ago, but Georgetown job, I think should be attractive. You know, it's, it's, it's in one of the best basketball conferences. It's got the history. It's got the tradition. They do play in NBA arena, which when they're winning, people do show up to. Okay. So yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I just think that it's, it's, it's putting a lot on Kevin Nickelberry if he's basically the only change that they make. Now I think in a perfect world, they will hire another special assistant. Keep in mind, this program, basically J- JT3 got Kevin Brodus to be the special assistant after he was probably a little bit too toxic to hire as an assistant again. You know, he needed to kind of, you know, distance himself away from some of the stuff that happened at Binghamton. Um, Jonathan Wallace was special assistant for a little bit, and then obviously Crouch. So at the very least... I don't think that you want there to be less people in the room. So if you promote Crouch, I think they got to find a special assistant. Um, and it's obviously that, you know, Patrick's got a really great relationship with Louis Orr. And I know a lot of people sort of view Louis Orr as like a senior that, you know, maybe could be behind the bench, that kind of thing. Him and Patrick are pretty much the same age. You know, I mean, I, you know, some people want to act like he's like going to fill the, the uh, Gene Katie role. And it's like him and Patrick are peers. It's not. Yeah. It's not that kind of, not that kind of relationship. Um, yeah. So, as we talk about on here, you are not someone that just talks about the AAU and recruiting. You're on the circuit. How has your spring been so far? What? Can, tell me where you've been. Tell me who you've seen. How have things been going for the club that you're at? Um. Things have been going well, a little up and down for us. I've been everywhere from Indianapolis. I just got back from Dallas yesterday. We played there. We've been in Kansas City. Um, you know, we've been down in Boo Williams and Hampton. And, you know, we still have Atlanta and New York City and those places on the docket. So we still have a little ways to go. Um, but it's been good. And I've obviously I've seen some incredibly, incredibly talented players. Ron Holland from, from Drive Nation who could end up with a uh, G League select contract. I watched him this past weekend. Um, Obviously, from a local uh, sense, we have uh, Jamie Kaiser over at New World over in Maryland, who is on the Adidas circuit. He he has been one of the guys who, when you ask somebody, how can the circuit help you get recruited, he has taken full advantage of his platform, and he has the vision – one teams it's seemingly almost every other day uh getting an offer um yeah. it's a lot of high level basketball i try to tell people the difference between um circuit and regular aau is that the circuit is what aau was when i was growing up in the 80s it's kind of a select um environment it's a lot of high level basketball where players who are going to play division 1 are playing directly with and against players who are going to play Division One. So, um, you know, it makes for something that looks in between uh, high school 
in college. It's higher level than high school. It's not quite as high level as college because of the age of these guys. But you're seeing um, you're seeing some high level and some great coaching. Um, I don't know if people realize this. The, the coaches on that level are not like Johnny Driveway's dad. Um, we've seen everyone this weekend. Uh, Jermaine O'Neal um, was out there coaching. There's been Jeff McGinnis. I get coached against a guy who's a current college coach um, at one of the, the uh, small schools at Wisconsin. Uh, this weekend, I coached against a guy that used to be an assistant coach at Tulsa. <laughs> These are the type of coaches you're going up against. And so um, it's extremely competitive. Um, it's extremely good basketball. And so, you know, it's something I think for the people and the kids who are on that level, I think they end up with lifelong friendships and opportunities to have Division One coaches tell them where they truly stand. And I think that's invaluable for those kids. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, uncle whomever or a, a family friend. You're getting it from the horse's mouth so to speak, of D1 coaches out there saying either you're good enough to come here or you're not good enough to come here. It, there's, there's no in-between. So I think it's an environment that gets criticized a lot, um, but I don't think that some of the criticism uh, is valid. I think it's antiquated and something that's just gotten regurgitated for years upon years. But for a lot of players, it is the proper platform for them to be evaluated by the proper people. So you mentioned Jamie Kaiser, Jamie Kaiser Jr. I should, I should say this one hits for me a little bit because he went to my high school, like Braddock. He's at Bishop Ireton right now. And the first time I saw him was like Braddock was coming off of a state uh, final appearance. They lost to, they had the one kid from JMU on their team. I can't remember who they lost. They lost to a team from Virginia Beach. And uh, so we're at one of the first games of the year, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's a public school. You lose in the state final. You lose a lot of guys. This is probably a step back. And I saw Kaiser, and I was like, oh, wow. You know, I didn't realize they had this kid that was on JV last year that's really good. Like, you know, he he's like, he's he's a real big kid. I don't know. if it, Do you think he's a guard? Do you think he's a small forward? What's your uh, take? He's a guard. He's a guard. He's okay. a guard on the college level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, you know, this is pretty, this, and I was like, the first time I saw him, I was like, man, this kid would be great in the Princeton. This is as, 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 as he's a freshman. And, you know, I didn't know he was a freshman. I, you know, I, I go online, I look at the roster. I was like ninth grade. I was like, oh, you know, and then after, after like maybe two or three games, I was like, this guy's a high major. And if you follow me on Twitter, I've always been saying, oh my gosh, Georgetown needs to go after this guy. He's right down the street. This is, you know, and plus Lake Braddock has sent a scholarship player to um, Georgetown before Ramel Ross um, 20 years ago. Um, And it was the same situation. Well, at that point, Kaiser wasn't playing for Ireton, but you know, Kaiser's coach at Ireton is a former Georgetown guard, Dwayne Bryant, you know, and Ramel Ross ended up at Georgetown because at that time, Dwayne Bryant was coaching TC Williams and told, Mm -hmm. you know, Eshrick, Hey, look, you got to get this guy. You know, so there's a little bit of history with the high school and with um, Georgetown. And I think, and maybe you, maybe you have an opinion on this. I think maybe the idea that his dad played college football and Jamie's a really good college or a really good high school football player, that maybe there was some 
some concern that he might, you know, maybe it's not worth recruiting him. But, you know, he's always been on Team Durant. Now he's for New World Order and Adidas. He was, you know, Nike. Um, I'm surprised it's taken this long for him to become such a hot commodity. And from the Georgetown angle, without having any real inside knowledge on this, um, it seems like they're a little bit late to the party, particularly when you're a program that's going through a down period. And I will say this, George Mason got in early. And he's getting, he's taking an official visit. And this is a kid that, you know, today tweeted he got an offer from Miami, which guess what? That usually means a really good NIL deal if you've been paying attention to the news. Okay. So a little disappointed that Georgetown didn't get on him earlier because one, he's really good. Two, he's local. They've struggled getting the local players. And when you're going through a time like you are, you can't be late to the party on these guys. You got to get in early because you're not able to sell current winning. You're trying to sell, we, we we get you and we win. You know, you can't say, oh, look what we've been doing recently. You don't want to say that because it hasn't been good. So which, what's, what's sort of your take, not necessarily having an insight to his recruiting, but the idea of, you know, if you're Georgetown, you got to get in early with these guys, right? Yeah, and there's no doubt. I, I think part of the platform he's been put on at Adidas has helped him a lot. Yeah. And and being on Team Durant, I mean, you're swallowed up by a lot of big big names that are also on there. So sometimes I always tell parents, uh, hey, look, sometimes um, EYBL, but your kid might have the talent to play EYBL, but maybe it's not the right platform. And I think uh, Jamie is one of those things. And and Georgetown becoming late to the party for locals has been a criticism I've heard uh, in in various places where. Uh, some of the local players and, and, and parents of those players have said, uh, you know, they use the word, and I know this word is overused, but the whole uh, idea of being disrespected, yeah. that, you know, we're an afterthought and you're chasing all these other kids that are four-star, five-stars, and then when you don't get them, then you call us like, hey, you know, Georgetown, remember me? I'm the great Patrick Ewing. And by then, those kids, have been recruited by other Power Five Division One schools, and uh, they don't have this memory of Georgetown winning and Patrick Ewing and all the glory years and John Thompson II. They don't have that. So it comes off as, oh, no, 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 no. You weren't interested in me before. Don't try to come in the door now. And I think that's one of the things. And I don't know um, how Nickelberry can, can fix that. Maybe he does try to go after some of these players earlier, use his AAU contacts. Uh, a little bit earlier, um, but it's something that Georgetown needs to change because if anything, what we've seen is Maryland has changed that. They are going after the local players early once they add added two local coaches to their benches, and it's starting to become become very very competitive um, with even George uh, George Mason being in the mix for some of the WCAC higher level players, something we didn't see, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, So for Georgetown, they have to understand the environment and the landscape that we're presently in. And they're going to have to go after the Kaisers when he's in 10th grade. You have to start putting out feelers, showing up, whether he's at Lake Braddock or Ireton, it doesn't make a difference. Showing up there, showing your face, um, you know, at Adidas Gauntlet. Uh, saying, hey, look, I'm not sending an assistant. I'm not sending a text. I'm taking myself out here to to recruit you personally 
in person like I've seen other big-name coaches do with these big-name players. They're not trusting their assistant, or their, and that's nothing against the assistant, but they want the kid to know, the prospect to know that, hey, you are a number one priority to me, and that's something that Georgetown needs to do. They need to show these guys early on in the process that they are a priority. You start doing that, now you're legitimately in the race for some of these local four- and five-star guys um, that would certainly help the program. Yeah, like I said, that one, because I go to as many of those games as I can, uh, it just seemed like this was a kid that was definitely going to be recruited by all these schools. I mean, the next level for him – would basically be if one of the, you know, quote unquote blue bloods goes after him. But, you know, he's going on an official soon this week to Virginia. He's going to take one to George Mason. Um, you know, it just, you know, it, it's just an example that's near and dear to my heart because I got a chance. To, I'm at every Georgetown home game. I go to as many like Brad games as I can. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's this kid over here. <laughs> Come on, guys. You know, so <laughs> it, it was good to finally see them offer and to see him and his family you know tweet about it and stuff but you know I feel like it would have been a bigger deal if it had happened last year at this time rather than now the offer from Georgetown is just one of like you know 30 offers he's had and I think that's where George Mason is ahead right now even you know locally Maryland you know to to be fair Obviously, Maryland has a new coach and all that stuff, but Maryland offered him, you know, around the same normal time period, not normal, but around this, the same period that uh, Georgetown and seems like every other school has been offering him. But George Mason got in early. As we know, George Mason is in the A-10. It is seen as, you know, a step below the Big East, you know, for good reason. And they have, a, from what I understand, they have a legitimate shot of getting a guy like him. And that's a big deal. And you could say, well, that's just all Kim English. Okay, sure, whatever. But that's what you need to do. You need to do things like this, and you need to identify those guys earlier rather than wait until, you know, oh, UVA's offered him. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. We should probably offer him a scholarship too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're right. And, and everyone knows it's not a big secret. Um, this is a national recruiting region. It's not a local recruiting region. You know, we've talked about it before. Villanova comes down here. They poach players. I mean, guys, guys get pulled out this region because they are – Michigan of late has had tremendous success um, recruiting out of this area. Um, so, like I said, it's, it, for Georgetown, it's, it's accepting the current landscape and coming up with a recruiting plan that fits that current landscape. And, frankly, we haven't seen that. And And – Hopefully, Nickelberry, if you're a Hoyas fan, hopefully he changes that. I mean, it's on him, man, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) he's the guy. And obviously, you know, Clinton Crouch can do more now than he could as the special assistant. So, you know, obviously, you know, I think that he's seen as someone that the younger generation seems to like and all that kind of good stuff. Um is there anything else we need to get to here? God, the Mavericks are just – I think Golden State decided tonight, you know what, we're cool. We're cool, you know, going and winning another game five. Um, God, I just saw the score. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, they, they've had a good night. Uh, I will say this. 
um, about, and I know this is not an NBA podcast, but well, um, Otto, Otto NBA, has a chance to get a Otto has a good chance to get a ring, Georgetown. Yes, he does. He's out tonight, but yeah, when he returns for Golden State, he he certainly does. But what you'll find is is um, the second round of the uh, NBA playoffs are usually better, and there are exceptions, and I'm sure people will be more than happy to tell me the exceptions. But usually the second round is better than the conference finals. And, again, there are exceptions. There were some some conference finals that had uh, LeBron in it, you know, the game seven with Boston, yada, 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 those type of things. You do have the You mean the Jeff for, Green for, game? For the most part. Huh? I like I, 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 I like to refer to that around these parts as the Jeff Green game. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I, but yeah, so I I've seen some posts um from some local guys talking about the blowouts uh in the conference finals and Lord knows tonight's not gonna help quell that conversation in those tweets. But um, you know, I, I think the NBA playoffs have been so good in the first and second round as far as close games and games that came down, um, that the conference finals have served as almost like an aberration of what the playoffs have been so far. Um, and, and that's my beginning and end of, of NBA playoff talk on, on your podcast. <laughs> well, I, I was playing a really fun fantasy game that Ben Standig set up and all my guys are out. So it's sort of, I had Giannis as far as guys that were hoping to make the finals, you know, basically just, you know, you pick players, you, know, we had a draft and then you know, you try and pick the guys that are good, but also the guys you think are going to play the most games. And uh, the Chris Middleton injury did not help me at all, I don't think. Um, I did have Drew Holiday as well, so I thought I would get two guys going at least to the finals. And that was a really good series, right? Because Boston was down 2-1 and 3-2, and they won it, which I think is always a fun way to do something like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that that sounds like a... Fun playoff uh, setup, but yeah, like I said, it's it's been it's been for those who who like uh, playoff basketball. It's, it's up to now. It's it's been very uh, entertaining, and I think all of us have enjoyed um, that next generation of player being in the uh, in the spotlight uh, with some of the transition from some of the older players on. So, uh, like I said, uh, the conference finals has been an aberration. It hasn't been great. Well, it was good catching up with you at MTC with Mook. We try to go over everything that's happened with Georgetown. There's been so many things. We weren't able to talk for five hours about it. Plus, nobody wants to really hear that. But it was good to kind of get catch up and get your thoughts on what you think they've done so far. Every time I think that they're done making moves, I'm wrong. So my guess is maybe we might see more staff additions or subtractions or maybe reshuffling of positions and titles and stuff but as far as the roster goes i think it's probably pretty much set i suppose there's waiver news we could hear about um or you know things of that nature administrative issues but this is probably the georgetown team that we're going to see and we'll have a lot more time to talk about it since it's only well i guess it's it's almost june but thanks everyone listening to Kente yeah. corner make sure to subscribe like let me know what's going on what you want to hear more or less of all that stuff Again, and we made it a whole podcast without talking about Pop Tarts. So you got to consider that a W. <laughs> yep.
All right. I really appreciate your time, Marcus. All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Bye. I'll see you.